You're listening to What Will It Take? Conversations with legends and movement makers with journalist and author Marianne Schnall. I'm really excited to share today my conversation with the iconic and incredible Gloria Steinem. I have had the pleasure of knowing Gloria for over two decades of my life and career. And I can tell you that in addition to all of the things that you may know about the public Gloria in terms of her absolute brilliance and the important change maker that she's been in transforming our culture and and giving so much to the world, she is also, as a person, everything you would sort of hope and expect that Gloria might be. She is warm. She is humble. She is generous. She is funny. She has been such an important mentor and supporter of me and my work throughout the course of my career. And she has also whispered things in my ear over the decades that have really stuck with me that I think are really universal wisdom. There was one particular time when she had hosted a fundraiser at her home for my nonprofit organization, Feminist.com. It was a salon on the state of feminism. And at this event, everybody was talking about how we were sort of habitually working on a shoestring budget. And afterwards, I will always remember when she came up to me and she really encouraged me to ask for what I need, which is something that really has stuck with me and I think is certainly something that women need to do more and more for ourselves. And then the other story that I think about is when she appeared at, uh, it was the launch for my first book, Daring to Be Ourselves, which was also a celebration of Feminist.com's 15-year anniversary. And she came up to me afterwards and she sort of put her arm around me and looked me in the eye and told me that I should, you know, feel so proud of this moment. And I deflected her compliment, I, you know, by saying, well, I was just really just, you know, a conduit for helping promote other, you know, amazing thought leaders and organizations. And she sort of gently stopped me and she reminded me not to defer it outward, but to instead take the moment in, give myself credit and sort of value my accomplishments, which I think is also something that we all need to hear and women especially need to do is sort of to own our worth and value our accomplishments. This conversation that you're about to hear was for my book, What Will It Take to Make a Woman President? And the backstory to that was she was actually one of the people who encouraged me to do the project because when I had done this article for CNN, for which I'd interviewed her about what will it take to make a woman president, and the article blew up and everybody was saying this should be a book, I went to her and I said, should I do this book? And would you be interviewed for it? And she was the one who encouraged me. You'll you'll hear us talking about that in this conversation, you know, saying to me that she thought it would be important that I do it because I would get a diversity of perspectives and that I understood that this was not just about biology. It was not just about electing one woman. It was about electing someone who represents the issues and would lift up all women and all people. So anyway, it was a big factor in my deciding to go ahead and do this uh, book project. One of the things that also really strikes me about Gloria is that, you know, although sometimes she's positioned as being somebody who is divisive, I think she is anything but that. And I think that what I've learned through watching her just, you know, in terms of, you know, as an activist and as a leader, she tries to like bring people in who don't think like her. And she's very curious. She's always trying to learn and sort of just be inclusive and to really make sure that she is talking in ways that promotes greater understanding and allows people in that might not normally, you know, already 
think like her. And one of, I think, the most important examples of that, and is probably one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, about the feminist movement, is that she, you know, is very inviting and inclusive of talking about men as part of this conversation, which is, of course, vital to us sort of dismantling all of these destructive gender roles and stereotypes. She talks about in this interview about the importance, for example, and thinking about women's leadership, not just the need to see women as authoritative, you know, sort of expert figures, but the importance of seeing men as caretakers and nurturers. And that's not just only because of the fact that we need men to share more in those sort of, you know, family and home responsibilities to sort of alleviate the burden on, on women so that they can be able to achieve their, you know, careers and goals, but also because she really talks about this idea. She quotes somebody and she, she says that it's about that we want to rescue the executioner from being the executioner, as well as the victims from being the victim, really talking about how destructive and constrictive these gender roles are on men and boys, and that, that she considers that as important as freeing women and girls from all of those stereotypes that are also constricting them. So to me, that has always been something that, you know, she is constantly talking about. She is constantly writing about. And as you're listening to sort of the brilliance of her words, I hope you also can get a sense of just how centered and calm her sort of grounded sense of self, how thoughtful she is when she delivers these answers. To me, that is something that I would love to be able to embody in my life. And it is something that I think just, you know, she has just a peaceful sense of herself I also wanted to note that this interview was conducted in 2013, so it was before the Clinton-Trump 2016 election. However, you will find her insights and perspectives are just as timely today. First of all, I mean, this this book was partially inspired by my 11-year-old daughter, Lotus, who, upon discovering recently that there had been no woman president ever, sort of asked this very simple, quizzical question of me, you know, she just looked at me and just went, why? And I actually found that simple, innocent question really hard to answer. You know, again, this book is dealing with not just about electing women to the presidency, which is symbolic, but just overall themes around women and politics and leadership and power. Mm -hmm. Just that simple question, why do you think it is that we have not yet had a woman president? One reason is that women weren't citizens for, you know, from 1776 through constitutional amendment. I mean, we were possessions like tables and chairs. Mm-hmm. So there was not the opportunity to own property, to uh, have the right to one's own earnings, to have the right to your own children. You could be forcibly returned to a violent husband or property, literally, like a thing. Mm-hmm. And the, the laws of slavery were modeled on the laws affecting wives. So that, that takes care of the long time through the 1920s, <laughs> and since then, we have been overcoming legal barriers. For instance, we couldn't sit on juries. The law schools didn't accept women or accepted a small percentage of women when I was growing up. Harvard, when I would have gone to law school, Harvard accepted no women, and Columbia accepted 5%. So, you know, those are just symbolic barriers, but they're, they're illustrative Mm-hmm. real powerful barriers. There are also what are called cultural barriers, but I'm not sure we should call them cultural because it's 
seems to me what affects men is called political and what affects women is called cultural. So the idea that only women could raise children, which is a libel on men, <laughs> meant that also when this wave of feminism began in the 70s and we began to try to elect women, there were two most frequent questions of women candidates. One, if you don't have children, why not? You're an unnatural person. And two, if you do have children, why aren't you home with them? When the National Women's Political Caucus began, which was the first organization devoted totally to appointing and electing women, the major way that women got into high political office was as widows. He married a man who was a governor or a senator. He died through no fault of yours. And only then were you allowed to take over the seat, the supposition being that you were carrying on your husband's work. And even, uh, what's her name, the great senator from uh, Vermont, even she was at first the secretary to a senator and then his wife, and when he died, she became senator. So I remember when I interviewed you, when, I mean, a lot of this book also came out of the piece I did for CNN on this, which got a lot of attention, but I remember at that time you were saying in regards to, you know, those sort of post-Hillary, that you didn't think we were then ready, you know, for a woman president. Do you still feel that way? Do you think there's a possibility we might be ready in 2016? Well, I, no, I think we're, thanks in large part to not just to Hillary, but to the many courageous women in politics, but Mm -hmm. especially Hillary, you know, because we, she was so visible in 2008 and since then as, as Secretary of State. I think she's helped to change people's expectations. But as I was saying then, the deeper problem is that we are still raised as children, mainly by women. So mm -hmm. we associate female authority childhood. We, as, as women, have our own example to go by, so some, sometimes we change, although there are women who also don't think that female authority is appropriate to public life, but it's, it's more likely to be men, and I think we saw it in the response to Hillary in 2008 on uh, big grown-up, otherwise adult television commentators were saying things like, I cross my legs when I see her. She reminds me of my first wife standing outside alimony. So, you know, people who would not ever say such things normally were saying them about Hillary because I, they, I would say, I would guess, because deep down they felt regressed by a powerful woman. The last time they saw one, they were six years old. What a conundrum for women, though, you know, because it's women who are sort of confident or ambitious or powerful or in, you know, positions of leadership are seen as, you know, kind of unlikable, that whole Hillary nutcracker thing. Mm -hmm. How can women... Mm -hmm. You do it anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you just, you just go forward and you end up changing the image eventually. So you may take a lot of punishment along the way. I do think that now I believe we could elect a woman, including Hillary, because mm -hmm. of the bravery of a lot of women, and especially Hillary. But, you know, Shirley Chisholm also took the white male-only sign off the White House door all by herself. So you do think that, that there's, a, there's a real possibility? That would, that would be very I exciting. Now, I mean, mm -hmm. in 2008, I did not believe that a, a woman, including Hillary, could win. I feel like sometimes this whole thing gets kind of reframed incorrectly as kind of like almost like a fairness thing, a men versus women, that it's like some type of competition. But why would this be important? You know, what 
That's important because we need the talent of the whole country, not mm-hmm. just a small percentage of it. Mm-hmm. You know, we once said that Ms. tried to figure out the talent pool from which we were choosing president. First, you eliminated half the country with female. Then you eliminated by class, you know, race. We ended up with 6%. So it's important for the whole country that we be able to choose from all of our talent. Otherwise, we lower our standards. Secondly, gender is still a social force, so it's still probably true, not always, but probably true that women are somewhat less likely to choose an aggressive solution, more likely to choose a conciliatory one. You know, not that a conciliatory one is always right, but it's just that it tends to be the least present in public life. I don't know if you saw this interview where Diane Sawyer this week on the, you know, the ABC newscast that she does, she was interviewing a sort of group of female, you know, members of the Senate. Two of the women, Susan Collins and Claire McCaskill, made statements that, well, I think this was also in regards to they felt like the whole thing with the fiscal cliff like that would have been resolved had it all been in a room with, with women. But they made this statement that they felt women, you know, were by nature more collaborative and less confrontational. I think it's true. It's not by nature, mm-hmm. but it's by culture, you know, because there is no such thing as gender. It's totally made up, but it's very powerful. Well, those do seem like qualities that would be <laughs> in Washington right now. No, and I remember because I still saved it. I don't know if you remember when I was considering all this encouragement idea to write this book, and I emailed you about saying, you know, do you think I should do this? And I, mm-hmm. I just looked up the email, and this was your comment. From a tactical point of view, your writing it would be good because you know it's not about biology or a job for one woman, but making life better for all women, hence not about Sarah Palin or Margaret Thatcher, who was elected to be anti-union, not pro-women. That sometimes gets lost. I mean, that's the other side of the coin. Can you talk a little bit, you know, about that distinction? People are people, you know. We're not into biological determinism here because that would be to abandon men, among other things. Men are human beings, too, that they're made to feel they have to earn their masculinity and to sometimes get into an extreme cult of masculinity that requires control and violence. As Cesar Chavez used to say, we want to rescue the executioner from being the executioner as well as the victim from being the victim. I mean, we're going to talking about, you know, uh, society only wanting to see women, you know, in feminine roles, which we were just talking about, and this sort of notion that power and leadership is, is often seen as masculine. It's also, sometimes I think it's like we're talking, like, I don't know if the word is metaphysically or conceptually, that sometimes feminine values like cooperation and care and empathy and compassion are sort of seen as soft as weak rather than part of kind of the full circle of human qualities necessary, you know, to affect... Yeah, but that's just because masculinity is is Mm -hmm. perceived as superior, necessary, inevitable, conquering, winning, all those things. It is really important to make sure that this, you know, conversation, right, it's not anti-masonic, you know, that men not only are lately being there to support women, they understand why it would be, you know, helpful to the world to have more women in these positions, but also to free themselves. I've forgotten who said the woman a man most fears is the woman inside himself. Mm. And I do feel like Obama was always seen, you know, and that was also with him running against Hillary as a more, you know, again, always like in quotes, but more feminine type of 
so hard to talk about this, but, you know, he... Well, I, I think we ought to just forget about talking about masculine and feminine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, going back to... Human. Yes, exactly. No, I mean, I, I actually think that is where we are, you know, headed. That's why I'm always about talking about how feminism has to be about sort of, you know, more of the human, human well, it's, conversation. Well, what it's about. Yeah. And, 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 and um, it kind of sets my teeth on edge when spirituality people talk about the eternal feminine. Mm. It's like we're giving in to the difference. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think also a lot of this is, is kind of, you know, the linguistics of things. But yeah, it is, I mean, still advocating for the fact that, of course, we do want more women. But at the, at the same time, yeah, that it's not framed as that women are perfect or better and, you know, all of these things that are always been part of the misconceptions of the feminist movement. Well, but, it is because culture is what it is right now. Mm-hmm. Society is what it is. It's probable that uh, walking around female for... 20 years or 50 years in this culture has given someone a set of experiences men don't necessarily have in the same way that walking around as a black person or a Hispanic person or a gay Mm -hmm. person, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. gives people a different set of experiences than a than a white heterosexual person you know we we need somebody because experience is everything mm-hmm. somebody who's experienced something is more expert than, than the experts we need politicians who look like the country which hopefully from this last election i feel like you know we're we're trying to yeah. hopefully making some progress now in terms of you know there are many other countries who've you know obviously already elected female heads of state and the united states is what was this 90th in the world in terms of women and national legislators what do these other countries know that we don't and why is the u.s do you think lagging so far behind when we are so much more progressive and democratic and you know other areas well i'm not sure we are so much progressive and democratic <laughs> okay because in economic division we're we're low down the list too I mean, the division between rich and poor here is exceeded only by four other major countries I think you know there there are different there are a variety of reasons they all function in different ways one is there's more power in this country it's still the dominant power in the world so there's more competition for these jobs one is that we are multiracial mm-hmm. and racism always incre- increases sexism because you have to maintain control of women and reproduction in order to maintain racial difference. The one one race countries, generally speaking, you know, as the Scandinavian example, for instance, have a slightly slightly less motivation to remain sexist. Another is that that we are big, you know. So social reform has to take place 50 times, whereas in France or Sweden or Finland, it only takes place once mm-hmm. in the national legislature. You know. and, and, and a final one is that the power of family, which is not as deep as in India, say, and many other countries. So if, you know, because Nehru, Pandit Nehru's family, ruling family was so strong or had such power, even a daughter was acceptable. Now, if she had had a brother, he would have been prime minister, no mm-hmm. doubt. But since she, since 
since Indra Gandhi didn't have a brother, <laughs> even a woman was acceptable because hmm. of the, it, the disaster of being a female was mitigated by the power of being in, uh, in that family. That's really interesting. Are you feeling progress, like we're, we are making a steady climb? I am, but it depends what we do. You know, I feel hopeful, but uh, I feel hopeful that you and I will act. And not, you know, it's not automatic. Mm-hmm. Nothing is automatic. And we say, that, what does that mean to like the common person? Like, how can? Well, it means recognizing that the voting booth is the only place on earth in which everybody is equal. So using it, and and we're we're still uh, not doing so well in percentages of who votes. And in terms of women running themselves, you know, what do you think are some of the factors or obstacles, either societal or sometimes even self-imposed, that you think deter women from entering the political pipeline? And, you know, what can we do as a society to, you know, encourage more women into running? Uh, well, uh, you know, one, one is that politics is a rough game, and, and women are, are culturally taught to seek approval, not disapproval, as Cheryl Sandberg points out, we have to lean in, <laughs> you know, lean in to, and, you know, not be dependent on being liked as much as we, as the culture has encouraged us to be. Money, of course, is a big barrier, huge barrier. I mean, I, I raise money for candidates who, if I'm raising money for them, probably are all the same on the issues. But if I'm raising money for a man running for the Senate, Someone will give me a thousand dollars. If it's a woman, they'll give me two hundred or three hundred. Not consciously, but unconsciously, as if women can get along on less, or they're ashamed to give a man less than a, you know. We have to name that and be conscious of giving women candidates as much as we would a male candidate. And we have to also, at the same time, do with less money because we're more likely to be opposed to the Pope brothers and whoever. <laughs> So we need to be really good at, at community organizing. And I think we are good at it, actually, uh, which is a good thing. It's a much more democratic method than just paying for TV ads. Now, we could do other, many other things to reform the electoral system, which would help everyone, especially women. For instance, radio and television stations have to have FCC licenses because they are essentially renting the public airwaves. There's no reason why the FCC couldn't require, in return for a license, couldn't require stations to give a percentage of their time free to candidates. That would take a lot of the money out of the political contest. Yeah, no, it does seem that there's a lot that could be done structurally. Do you think part of the issue is that, well, not just women, people in general have gone a little cynical about the political arena as a, as a form for effective change anyway? Uh, well, a great deal of effort has been expended making us cynical. I mean, I remember during the Nixon administration when, because it was clear that even by then, even though the Republicans weren't, you know, as much in control of crazy former Democrats as they are now, but it was still pretty clear that the Republicans benefited from a low voter turnout because then it was older, richer, whiter voters. So they quite consciously depicted Politics is dirty, you wouldn't want to get involved, Don't uh, your vote doesn't count, neither mm-hmm. of which is true. So, you know, we have to understand that that was a conscious campaign to keep us from voting. Mm-hmm. And it's still a conscious campaign to keep us from voting. I'm not saying everybody who believes that is getting into the campaign. They may believe that for their own independent reasons. But there is also a campaign to, keep, to tell us that. I mean, it's not unlike saying to women, 
well, money is dirty and, mm-hmm. uh, and business is, you know, crooked. You wouldn't mm-hmm. want to get it. It's a way of keeping us out. The other thing, and, you know, as co-founder of the Women's Media Center, there was one thing I was very struck by, the movie Misrepresentation, but there was one thing that really stood out to me. I don't know if you remember what Carolyn Heldman said that, you know, when children are seven years old, boys and girls say they want to become president in roughly the same numbers. By the time they're 15, however, the number of girls who say they'd like to be president dropped off dramatically as compared to the boys. What do you think the role media plays in all this? Well, of course, because the media is the main purveyor of masculinity and femininity. And as Carol Gilligan pointed out so brilliantly, you know, when when little girls are 11 and 12, the gender role comes down upon them, or perhaps even younger. And the purpose of the gender role is to Turn, turn us toward having babies and taking care of them for nothing. Well, I do remember all of the Women's Media Center campaigns, the sexism in the media in the 2008 elections, or just in general, the things they say about Nancy Pelosi. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. what happened? That role, too, that the media yeah, plays. of course, of course. I mean, the, you know, the media is the purveyor of dominant values, mm-hmm. and you have to fight with it to change. No, mm-hmm. you know, it does, it does change, you know, slowly, but it does change. Um, and I keep thinking back to Hillary's presidential bid, and I, I thought one of the most interesting times we've had in a while was during the race between Obama and Hillary. There was like this very, at one point, this very sort of messy dialogue around race and gender, and there were, you know, a lot of it divisive... It was outrageous. It was outrageous. Uh, it made me so, I still mm-hmm. made me so angry to, for people to be told they have to choose between sex and race as which is more important is, first of all, rendering most women in the world invisible who, who experience both sex and race. It's outrageous to present that choice. It's like saying, you know, wh- which is more important, your legs or your arms. It's just awful. What did we learn from Is there any positive to take out of that? Because I remember you wrote that very powerful editorial, but I do remember that people who were usually allies, there were so many splits, and I just, I almost wanted to stay in that moment for a while because I felt like there was a lot to be learned, though. I mean, uh, you know, I think that I, uh, I inadvertently, because I was writing in a hurry and editing on the phone in that mm-hmm. way that you do, you know, I thought I was saying that, that sex is the most, extensive or universal, you know, because it affects every group, all races and so on. So, and, and I said, I think, in the, that it extends from the kitchen to the White House. Mm-hmm. But that was not, uh, you know, I should have said extensive, and I think I said restrictive, which, is, which I shouldn't have said, because only the person in the situation knows whether it's sex and or race or whatever is, you know, there's no competition of tears here. Mm-hmm. Tears are tears. Right. It's mm-hmm. all wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I thought that was yeah. something healthy that came out of it. And it was interesting that it felt a little generational. Yeah, but that, but that made perfect sense, you mm-hmm. know, because for, the, for older women, including a lot of black women who supported Hillary, this was their last chance to ever see a female president. Mm-hmm. For younger women, they would have many other chances. And what women do you see on the political landscape right now that you think would make good future candidates? Well, I think Kirsten Gillibrand is, mm, is uh, I love her. outstanding, a whole person who leads a whole life mm-hmm. <laughs> and is an excellent senator. I think the same is true of uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, the same is true of Maxine Waters, but because she came into politics earlier, because she's older, she probably you know, will not be you know, present in political life long enough you know, mm-hmm. to, get, to get the reward she deserves. 
You know, a lot of this is also, you know, I think about, which is somewhere by my bed, the, you know, the book uh, Revolution from Within, that some of this is about appealing to, to women to kind of value and honor their, their vision and their thoughts and their voices, that they have, you know, actually something to offer their world through their, their voices and leadership. How did you, you know, tap into your leader or what, you know, what advice do you have on having the courage to kind of, you know, do that, to honor your voice and to speak out and contribute your influence, even though sometimes uh, society is pushing uh, against that? Hang out with people who make you feel smart, not dumb. That's crucial. Because if they make you feel dumb, they're not <laughs> supporting you and they're not helping you. It isn't that we're right or wrong. We're, uh, you, you know, it doesn't have to do with being right all the time, but just that some, if you, if you have consistency of support from people who value your opinion, it will help you to value. We're communal people. You can't do it by yourself. So I think there is so much to take away from that conversation with Gloria. One of the things that really stands out to me as she was talking about this idea that in terms of talking about having more women in elected office, she acknowledges that politics is a tough game. And she thinks that one of the things that we need to overcome, in addition to, of course, structural changes having to do with, you know, campaign finance reform, changing the way that, you know, elections are being run, but also was this idea that women need to find within them a way to not feel like they need to constantly seek approval or to be liked, that obviously that's sort of like, you know, opposite to being a leader is if you're always trying to please and be liked. And she was just sort of saying, and this is from somebody who has had the experience of being out there and and being subject to unfair attacks, that you just do it anyway. So I think one of the things that I learned from Gloria, who has been in this for the long haul in today's day and age, where we all are change makers in our own way, whether it's running for office or just as being an engaged citizen, is finding that sort of courage within yourself and that sort of your resilience to kind of keep going. And Gloria is still going. She is still out there there on the road, giving speeches and making change. The other thing that I think I also have sort of learned from her, because she does talk a lot about the inner transformation that is so important. She has a whole book called Revolution from Within. And since, you know, I think that they're obviously like we're all doing and there's action steps, but there's so much within us that also needs to change and transform. Like when she was talking about that, you know, we need to teach boys to be babysitters because then later on in life, they will know how to be caretakers and nurturers. So I think that shift is is also something really important that she sort of underscores. And lastly, I think the call to action that she said when she was asked whether she was hopeful was this idea that, yes, she is hopeful, but only if you and I will act. That progress, as she said, is not automatic. It does require all of us finding it within ourselves to do whatever we can to act and make a difference. So to me, that is a very rousing call to action that feels very timely for today. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time on What Will It Take? Thank you for listening to What Will It Take? Conversations with legends and movement makers with journalist and author Marianne Schnall. For more information about this podcast or our host, check out whatwillittake.com or follow us on Twitter at Marianne Schnall.